three guys were hiking in the forest. They came upon this large, raging, violent river. You know, the kind when the spring thaws hit and uh, it's just it's running high and it, it's almost impassable. And they really needed to get to the other side of this river. So the first man stopped and he, and he prayed and he said, God, please give me the strength to cross this river. Poof. God gave him big arms and strong legs, and he was able to swim across. It took him two hours, and he almost drowned twice. But after witnessing that, the second man stopped, and he prayed, and he said, God, please give me strength and the tools to cross this river. Poof. God gave him a rowboat and strong arms and strong legs, and he was able to row across the river. It took him about an hour, and he almost capsized once. Now, Standing back and seeing what had happened to the first two men, the third man stopped and he prayed, God, please give me the strength and the tools and the intelligence to cross this river. Poof, he was turned into a woman. She checked the map. She hiked 100 yards upstream and walked across the bridge. I mean, let's face it, guys. When faced by a challenge, we're not always stopping to take inventory of the big picture. Right? We're just like, we're wired to conquer and fight and move forward, and we're just going to do it, just not always in the smartest way. And when we stop to look at the bigger picture, it gives us a better perspective on what we're facing. In her book, Mystery on the Desert, Maria Reich describes a series of strange lines that for, for many years uh, in Peru just were a mystery to people. Um, they're, they're in the plains of Peru. So some of these lines covering many miles and, and not knowing what they were, uh, many people assumed that these lines were the remains of ancient irrigation ditches. But then in 1939, Dr. Paul Cossack of Long Island University discovered their true meaning. And the way that they could only be understood was from an airplane uh, high in the air. Only when viewed from a plane at a great height did these seemingly random lines take the shapes of enormous birds and insects and animals. And, um, and you think, well, if only they had had Google Earth. I mean, come on, right? Life is like this. This is how we, how we interact with life. We live at street level most days, and we rarely leave the ground. And so we get confused and we, and we misunderstand some of the things God is doing in the world because our, our perspective is limited. We're at street level. And God's at the 30,000-foot view, Google Earth. And I know on many occasions as a younger man, I, I was frustrated by things happening in my life or happening in the church or by God's Word limiting things that I wanted or by any number of other things that I just couldn't see or understand clearly because I didn't have his perspective. I was at street level. God is seated high on his throne. But there's always a bigger picture than the one I could see. And I, I, all of that is to say our text in 1 Corinthians is centered on marriage this morning and the relationship between the husband and the wife. And I share those illustrations to set up this foundational truth. We really desperately need to have the bigger picture in mind when it comes to the things of God, especially in our marriages. We, we just get immersed and entangled up in the day-to-day -day of living with our spouse, 
loving our kids, being a family, being a married couple, and we really need to back out sometimes and just get the bigger perspective. There's a good and glorious reason why God has set boundaries that he has set and why he's provided so much good and so much pleasure to be had in the context of marriage. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at our text this morning. We're going to jump right into the exposition because there's a lot to unpack. So we're in 1 Corinthians 7. And we're going to read through uh, and unpack verses 1 through 16. So we'll just jump right in this morning. Paul's writing and he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So remember that... 1 Corinthians, the book that we call 1 Corinthians, is actually Paul's second letter to this church. And they have written a letter to him. They have, there's a reasonable deduction here in verse 1 that some, somebody, somebody in the church or some group of people in the church have reached out to Paul via a letter asking some questions and needing some additional clarification and direction from him. And having just dealt with the topic of sexual immorality, in the previous chapter, in the way that God sees that, Paul now deals with regulative and normative realities when it comes to sex and marriage. And the first and most important of these is implicit in verse 2. There, there's a deliberate couching of this issue within the terms wife and husband, and that is meant to uphold and reinforce and reaffirm the biblical norm that sex is meant for the context of marriage. That is God's design. It was never meant to be a commodity that is bought and sold, prostitution. It's never meant to just be a form of recreation. It was designed first and foremost for procreation, and though it's pleasurable, that is not its end or purpose. We need to, we need to have the big picture in mind. So the Corinthian Christians seem to believe that if sexual immorality was such a danger, and it is, it would be better just to abstain from sex altogether, including sex in the context of marriage. And along with this was another belief that drove their line of thinking that somehow celibacy was more holy than marriage. This belief led to the conclusion that married persons ought to separate, and this practice then gained standing among the church as being super spiritual. Man, if, if, if you're married and you, you guys decide to separate and be celibate, you are super Christians. And, um, and, and so especially if you could finalize that, you know, you, you've, you've basically dissolved your marriage and you're just going to live as a celibate single. <coughs> So we remember, we remember how when we started this series in 1 Corinthians called Church Matters, we talked about how dysfunctional and jacked up this church was. It's so jacked up that even their attempts at holiness are backwards and upside down, right? Hence the need for God's correction through Paul. Paul, Paul is compelled to write this letter in response and correct some of these issues. So in verse 3, Paul says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal Rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Stop. Actually, no, don't stop. There's another, there's another sentence. 
Most of us would like to stop there. All the guys are like, stop. No. Next sentence. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What would happen to some of our marriages if we started actually living that out? It would be revolutionary. This, this phrase, conjugal rights, the rights especially to sexual relations regarded as exercisable in law by each partner in a marriage. In God's economy, what he's saying is each spouse has the right to engage in sexual relations with the other spouse. Now, that sounds kind of scary and intrusive and invasive to our uber-autonomous cultural ears. You tell me that my spouse has the right to say, I, I, wanna, I want this from you? I, I don't, I don't, I'm not feeling that right now. Yeah, they have the right to ask for that. That's, this is man's thinking about this. This is not God, God's design. God's design is you belong to one another. There's a mutuality here. We have to go back to what marriage is because, again, we're not talking about recreational sex or shacking up or playing pretend. We're, we're talking about a marriage which is God's good design for the foundation of family and implicitly necessary to that design is a mutuality of submission and service to one another in the marriage. It's necessary. It's foundational. And Paul meant this to apply to every Christian marriage. It shows that every wife has affection that is due to her. Paul didn't think that only young wives or pretty wives or submissive wives are due affection, but that every wife is due affection by virtue of being a wife. Okay? So the same goes in the other direction for the men, with respect. This is about mutuality. There's a mutual sexual responsibility in marriage. People in our culture today, if they're really thoughtful, think marriage is a 50-50 proposition. I'll meet you halfway, we'll meet in the middle. That is not God's design, folks. God's version of marriage is a 100%, 100% covenant union. Both people are fully committed, giving all of themselves to this reality, this new reality. That's God's design. So even when a couple is unable for physical or other reasons to have complete uh, sexual intimacy in their marriage, they can still have an affectionate relationship. And thus they can fulfill God's purpose for these commands. So the husband has, the husband has obligations towards the wife and the wife has obligations towards her husband. And the emphasis from each spouse should be, you deserve this affection and care from me. It should not be a demand from the spouse saying, you owe me this. It should be each spouse giving and in a, in a posture of saying, you, you need this from me, and I want to, I, you deserve this from me. I want to give this to you. These obligations are so concrete in God's word that it could be said that the wife's body does not even belong to herself. Paul says in verse 5, do not deprive one another. I'm still talking about sex in the context of marriage. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you might devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here we see in these verses that there are legitimate and good reasons for a couple agreeing to abstain from sex within the marriage, but only for a limited time. Withholding, this is a different issue, withholding from one's spouse as a form of punishment 
or as a bargaining chip to get what you want is wrong and sinful. And I just want to be really clear about that. If, if you've developed a pattern in your marriage where you withhold affection or sex from the other spouse to get things that you want, that is wrong and sinful. It's an offense towards God and what he has made. Um, in fact, the word for deprive here in the Greek is the same word as defraud we, we read in chapter 6, where Paul's saying, you guys take each other to court. Wouldn't it be better just to let people defraud you? It's the same Greek word. You're defrauding your spouse if you treat sex like a weapon or a bargaining chip. When we deny physical affection and sexual intimacy with our spouse, we're cheating them, God says. And so the greater warning here is that Satan is always looking for ways to get into your marriage to tempt us and lead us astray. And when one spouse is withholding from the other spouse, it sets up an environment where Satan can do some of his best work. We need to be on guard. We need to be careful about that. So God will permit a married couple to abstain from sexual relations for a short time for the sake of fasting and prayer. And if this concession is used, it's only to be for an agreed upon time between the spouses. So verse 6, we go on. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all people were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, you have just encountered my life verse in my early 20s. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. I didn't have a lot of the New Testament committed to memory at 22, but I knew that verse. And, and I knew that I had to get married and that God had not called me to be single. I knew that. The, to, to, to the current people in the room that are singles, I'll simply say that either choice, whether remaining single or getting married, can lead to a life that is glorifying to God. Either choice can lead to a life that is glorifying to God. Just as either choice can lead to unforeseen circumstances and difficulties and challenges, even in really godly marriages. There's no guarantee if you go this way or go that way that things are going to be hunky-dory and always roses and rainbows and ponies and kittens. Life is full of challenges and hardships. And so one way is not better than the other way, but with, uh, as we look at the culture, look at the world, things careening out of control in our nation and in the world, I can understand why some might shun marriage and why others might run towards it. Either choice is, is a good choice. Just have, be sorting through your own motives. You, you should really talk to your pastor about these things. Oh, wait, I'm your pastor. Um, that'll be $29.95. And I love this quote uh, I found this week from Ruth Bell Graham. She said, a good marriage is the union of two good forgivers. A good marriage is the union of two good forgivers. That is such an excellent truth. I push Jen to be a better forgiver all the time. <laughs> it's true. To the married, verse 10, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Here's the bottom line. God hates divorce, period. I'm not going to work to qualify that for anybody. 
It's what Scripture says. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Uh, God is on a rant um, through the prophet Malachi to the people of Israel. He says, here's the second thing you do, which tells us he's already been laying it down for several verses. He said, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Thank you. What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, I actually think the ESV translation does poorly here. Other translations have it better in verse 16. Here's how it reads in other translations. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. It's just really clear. He hates it. He designed marriage. Marriage is a reflection of his heart for humanity. The union of two people uh, becoming one and all the intimacy that's there in that covenant reality. And when we break that covenant, it breaks his heart. And so... This is, this is the undoing of what he instituted in the Garden of Eden, the unraveling of marriage and the destruction of the family, which leads to the destruction of cultures and nations. You understand that, right? That the family is the, the building block of culture. In fact, someone asked me recently to list out some of the most significant impacts on our culture the last 100 years that have precipitated the, the fall of Western civilization. And, and maybe that's news to you, but Western civilization is falling apart. And so I, I had a list of about 10 to 15 things that I thought were the biggest contributing factors to the fall of Western civilization. And in my top three was no contest divorce. It, it's, it's, again, it's the undoing of what he instituted in Eden. Uh, marriage is the glue of a healthy culture. When you start giving people permission to leave their spouse for any reason at all, you have set in motion the destruction of that culture. When the family falls apart, um, broken families all over the place, then the culture begins to crumble on it under the weight of its own uh, of, of what it is. And so this is this is the reality that we're living in. Paul says to the rest, verse twelve, I say, I not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So let me just stop and, and uh, insert a little comment here, a little clarification, because verse 12 is really confusing to a lot of people. Because Paul says, I, I'm saying this, not the Lord. And he goes, well, is this even inspired? Should this be in the Bible? So we believe here at Emmaus Road in what we call verbal plenary inspiration. That means the Bible is God's word to humanity. It was written by human agency, human authors, but God prompted and guided them to write what they wrote. God is the author behind the human authors. Every word 
Every word form, every word placement found in the Bible's original manuscripts was divinely and intentionally written by God through human agency. That is what we believe. I say that to deal with the way many people misunderstand this section of Scripture, thinking that the Bible includes Paul's opinions, which are not inspired or even maybe contrary to God's Word. But Paul is not diminishing marriage, because as a former Pharisee, he knows full well that God instituted marriage between one man and one woman in Eden in the book of Genesis. Rather, Paul is stating the obvious benefits that singleness affords those who are in ministry or who have a desire for full-time ministry. You're more uh, nimble. You can go places. You're not tied to a family if you're in ministry. However, Paul mentions that singleness is a gift from God, and not not everybody has that gift. He says that in verse 7. So for those who are currently married, Paul tells them to remain married. And in verse 10, Paul says, not I, but the Lord. So that's a direct command from Jesus that goes back to Matthew 5.32. Remember remember Jesus said, I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality commits adultery, right? So the context of verses 12 and 13 is those who are both unsaved when they were married. They were both pagans. They got married, but one spouse is now born again. You've got one of the two that's now a Christian, and Scripture does tell us who are born again not to marry spiritually dead people, right? So if you're a born-again believer and you're single, you you don't have any business marrying a person who's not a Christian. Scripture's really clear about that. Those two, those two people will be unequally yoked, one being alive in Christ, the other one being dead in their sins. That's not a situation you want to enter into. But in the situation where one spouse has become a Christian, as was happening in the church at Corinth, Paul tells the believing spouse, the born-again spouse, he says to them uh, to remain with the unbelieving spouse with the, with the comment that the command comes from him, not from Jesus. But Paul's not just offering his own opinion here. He, he's saying that what he's saying is that Jesus never addressed that issue directly during his earthly ministry. But this command from Paul is a reasonable deduction from Jesus' teaching. So it's not just Paul's opinion. It's inspired. It's, it's the word of God. Okay? So if you get hung up on that, I just want to help clarify that for us. And then verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So, boy, that's a tangled mess. Let's deal with that. Um, Holy is a word in Scripture that means set apart for God's express purposes. It, It translates different or other than. It's just not like anything you've known. So let's talk about what this does not mean, okay? What this does not mean, um, when we talk about being made holy, we're not talking about being saved. We're not talking about justification, what we call forensic justification. When a person puts their faith in Christ, Jesus looks at that person and says, you are now saved. You are in the kingdom. There's a declaration of um, status at that point. Okay, You are holy. Um, this is not that. If that were the case, then there'd be two ways to get to heaven. You could put your faith in Jesus or you could get married. Right, And that's not what the Bible teaches. So this is not talking about justification. But marriage is a form of sanctification. And sanctification is that uh, practical, day-to-day, becoming more holy 
because you're in relationship with other people that rub the rough edges off your life. And so you still have to, like, you think about this, whether, um, whether both spouses are Christians or only one spouse is a Christian or whether both spouses are non-Christians, you've still got to learn to die to yourself to live with your spouse. You've still got to give up strong preferences to live with your spouse. You've still got to navigate disagreements. And we could go down a whole list of things that you still have to do, even if both spouses are card-carrying pagans. You're still going to be forced to give up some of your rights and die to yourself in some ways. And that's what's in view here. And he mentions children being holy. The same thing's true of children born into an intact marriage. They sanctify their parents by short-circuiting selfishness. And some of you singles are going, what? I don't even, what does that mean? Have some kids. You'll find out real quick. They short-circuit your selfishness. And good parents discipline their children and raise them to be decent people. And in this context where at least one parent is a Christian, then those kids in that context should be getting the word of God and seeing at least one life of one parent that reflects Jesus. And so there's a way in which those kids are made holy, sanctified in that sense. Uh, but just to, I just want to drive this, this nail deep. Um, Here's some facts on the benefits of home with both parents. Because we live in a culture where it's like, well, you can just do whatever you want. And there are no consequences. But listen to what happens when you've got both parents, whether they're believers or not. You've got a two-parent home. Here are some of the benefits sociologists have done tons of research on this. Children growing up in homes with two parents have, uh, that have been married continuously are less likely to experience a wide range of problems, academic, social, emotional, cognitive, um, not only in their childhood, but in adulthood later as well. Research shows that family intactness has beneficial influence on reducing out-of-wedlock births, uh, increasing high school and college graduation rates, and even has long-term benefits such as higher employment rates. The kids are just more stable. They're more, they're more grounded. They're, they're, they've been loved well by both parents who are both at home. Research shows that the family structure is related to preschool children's cognitive development skills. Being raised in a married family reduces a child's probability of living in poverty by approximately 82%. And that's just a little sampling. There was a ton of research that I just couldn't, we'd have been here for two hours if I just laid it all out. But there's a lot to be said about what the God-designed family unit does for people when it's, when it's operating optimally. That's the way he designed it. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. So what he's saying is that unbelievers are not held to the same standard as born-again Christians. We are bound by God's word. So note here that the unbeliever who is, a, is the one who's abandoned the marriage. Not, this is not permission for Christians to do that. But the unbeliever is not bound by that. They don't have the spirit in them, and they're not, they're not bound by that constraint. So... And then Paul wraps up with verse 16, and he says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And again, here our English translation is just a little clunky. Um, obviously, no one of us can save anyone. Only Jesus saves. But the rhetorical question is, 
really this. How do you know whether God will use you and your faithfulness to this marriage to bring your spouse to salvation? How do you know? If you give up on it now, you'll never know. How do you know that God doesn't want to use you and your faithfulness and your sacrifice and you're pressing into Jesus daily because you're not being loved the way that you should be loved, treated the way you should be treated. He won't use all of that to bring that unbelieving spouse to salvation. How do you know? All of this presupposes God's design, by the way. Male and female. Gender exists. It's not just a social construct. There aren't 800 of them. Just two. Male and female. Check the plumbing. God made us equal. He made us equal in value. Man and wife. Husband and wife. Man and woman. Equal in value. Different in form and in roles in the marriage. Equal in value. Different in role. We've got to think like Christ followers, not like the world. Love this illustration I read from Charles Spurgeon years ago. I had trouble finding it this week, but when I did, I was really happy because I get to share it with you because I couldn't remember all the details, but I'll just read it to you. This is straight out of one of Spurgeon's sermons. <clears throat> he says, there's a tale of a wife, a godly woman, who for 20 years have been persecuted by a brutal husband. A husband so excessively wicked and uncaring that her faith at last failed her and she ceased to be able to believe that he could ever be converted. But all this while, she was still more kind to him than ever. And one night at 2 a.m. in a drunken stupor, he told his friends at the bar that he had such a wife as no other man had, and if they would just go home with him, he would wake her up and try her temper, and she would cook supper for them all. So they came, and the supper very soon was made ready, consisting of such things as she had prepared as well and as rapidly as the occasion would allow. And she waited at their table with as much cheerfulness as if the feast had been held at the proper time. She did not utter a word of complaint. And at last, one of the company, who was a little more sober than the rest, asked, how is it that she could be always so kind to such a horrible husband? Seeing that her conduct had made a little impression, she ventured to say to him, I have done all that I can to bring my husband to God, and I fear that he will never be saved. Since, therefore, his portion must be in hell forever, I will make him as happy as I can while he is here, for he has nothing to expect hereafter. There's no conclusion to that story, but one would certainly hope that he had sobered up and repented after hearing that truth. No one is guaranteed a preferential outcome that we might hope for in marriage. We do everything that we do in this life by faith to some degree. No one is guaranteed 
the preferential outcome that we might hope for. 1 Corinthians 7, again, verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? But I'll just tell you this. Nobody was ever nagged into the kingdom of God. Nobody was ever manipulated into the kingdom of God. We, we come to Christ because we're shown grace. We're shown love. We're shown mercy. If your spouse is on the receiving end of constant criticism and manipulation, you will not see the results that your heart truly longs for. And whether your marriage is healthy or unhealthy, vibrant, stable, or dysfunctional, there is a bigger picture here. There's a bigger picture that God is trying to paint. Ephesians 5, Paul says it this way. He says, husbands, love your wives. And here's the example I want to give you when you think about how to love your wife. Love her the way Jesus loves his church. He gave himself up for her. He died on the cross for her. He sacrificed himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, love your wives like that. And then he says this, in the very same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Nobody ever hated their own flesh, but they nourish it and cherish it just as Christ does the church. And we are members of his body. Therefore, and he's quoting from Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, he says, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And check that again. Check that again. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying this about Jesus and the church. It's about Jesus and the church. All of what we've been talking about here in this passage this morning with regards to marriage is designed by God to point people on earth back to him. Marriage is a picture. You, if you're married, you're in a, a one-act play. Husbands, you, part, you play the part of God, right? Ladies, you play the part of the church, you know, Jesus and the church, in relationship to one another. And we're, we're modeling for all of our lost neighbors and all of the people in our community and everybody who knows us, we're supposed to be modeling what it looks like for Jesus to be in covenant union with the church, so the ultimate thing we can say about marriage is that it exists to display God. So now we see how marriage is a pattern after Christ's covenant relationship to his redeemed people, the church. And therefore, the highest purpose in marriage is to put that covenantal relationship of Christ and his church on display for the watching world to see. They need to see that in us, in the church. That is why marriage exists. If you're married, that's why you're married. That's the ultimate purpose of your marriage. If you are in the room and you're single and you hope to become married, at some point in the future, this should be your central hope and purpose for your marriage, that it would display the relationship between Christ and the church clearly to the people around you. So as we wrap up this section of 1 Corinthians this morning, I want to leave you with two excellent quotes that help us with the bigger picture of marriage as it displays our relationship with God. And the first one's from John Piper, his book, Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, which is an excellent book. If you've never read Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, single guys in the room especially, get the book. 
It's well worth your time. Here's the quote from John Piper. He said, God created us with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to him in love and what it means to turn away from him to others. In other words, all the things we think like, Marriage here and sex here on earth is the end-all, be-all. It's just the means by which we gain understanding about our relationship with him. It's just a shadow, Scripture says. Everything on earth is just a shadow or a type of Christ. He is the substance. He is the reality. So don't get, don't get hooked into and wrapped up so much in the shadow that you, that you don't look at the one who's casting the shadow. Here's the other quote. From C.S. Lewis, and I love this one. This, this one has been like just sitting on my heart all week. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Let me just say it again. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Love God more than your spouse, and you will love your spouse to the maximum capacity that you have. Love Jesus first. So this big picture is all about our earthly marriage pointing to and rightly representing God to a watching world. And as we love him more with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, then we will love our spouses better and more deeply and more completely. And as we love our spouses more completely, we gain insights into the depth of the love and forgiveness that God has for us as his covenant people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word on this issue. Our culture is very confused about this, and even in the church, we struggle with this. And so we ask you, Lord, to be faithful to us and give us clarity, not just in our understanding, but in our obedience and implementation. You said, Jesus, that if we love you, we would obey you. It is not enough for us to have been in the room this morning and heard these things. We need to take them into our hearts and let you work them into our lives so that we practice them. Lord, would you give us grace to do that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big picture is all about earthly marriage pointing to and rightly representing God to the watching world. And as we love him more, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we will love our spouses better and more deeply and more completely. And as we love our spouses more completely, we gain insights into the depth of the love and forgiveness that God has for us as his covenant people. We've got to have the big picture in view when it comes to the things of God, especially marriage. So do everything you can to strengthen your marriage and the marriages around you. And in doing so, you will be holding up a picture of Jesus and his bride for the watching world to see. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.